Welcome back to another episode of the CNS Summit podcast. This episode was recorded live at the main stage of the 2019 CNS Summit in Boca Raton, Florida. It features a conversation with Dr. Amy Abernathy and Dr. Amir Kalali. Dr. Abernathy is the Principal Deputy Commissioner and Acting CIO of the FDA, and Dr. Kalali is the Chief Curator of CNS Summit. Together, they discuss the role of technology and how the FDA is meeting the evolving needs of the biomedical landscape. Subscribe to the complete CNS Summit podcast series on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also find this and hundreds of other health podcasts on Health Podcast Network, which you can find at healthpodcastnetwork.com. To learn more about upcoming events, news, and announcements, visit the website at cnssummit.org. And now, here's the conversation with Dr. Amy Abernathy from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Hi, thank you for coming, Amy. Knowing Amy's schedule, actually, at the moment, I'm very grateful you um, made it today. I know how crazy it is for you, so I'm very uh, grateful you're here. Um, Now, you've got a really interesting background. I I wonder if you can tell us a little bit just to start for people that may not know. I think most people do, but tell us a little about your background and what drew you to work for the FDA, because your background is not really working for the government, I don't think, right? No, and um, I'll also remember after I tell you about my background to tell you uh, my three funny things that you instructed me on the call to tell you about my background as well. Okay. <laughs> so, I'll, I'll... Um, when, when I was in the clinic, I'm an oncologist by back, background, uh, and when I was in the clinic, I, I was often um, almost haunted by the practical reality of the cancer patient who had an urgency today to receive better cancer care and yet it took us 14 to 17 years to develop products, and we've been hearing all about that. And practically speaking, how do we speed that up? So when I was in academia, I focused on this core question of could we build better systems to accelerate clinical trials as well as outcomes research in order to understand better what works for this patient now. But what I discovered was we were building these data and technology solutions that we kept banging against a ceiling, specifically a ceiling in engineering and the ability to bring modern software design to the clinical trials process. And so approximately 2014, I did a right-hand turn to the tech industry where I joined a healthcare startup to try and ask the question, could I work with the tech industry and venture capital to try and solve the same problem? Could we bring tech to accelerate clinical trials and be able to clean up data in service of clinical evidence development or or real-world evidence. While I was in those two roles, uh, it was very clear that FDA really provided the North Star from the standpoint of the guideposts of this is the direction and this is what good looks like. And so as I had the opportunity to do a next job, I went, or came, I guess, to FDA in approximately February to really try and continue trying to address exactly the same question. How do we speed up the process of getting safe and effective therapies to the patient in the clinic who's got an urgency today? And so that really is what brought me to FDA and and my core focus there. Um, And uh, I've been there since February. By the way, so you have at least two roles at FDA, right? So, So it's very unusual to the medical background to be a CIO as well, right? Uh, Yeah, so, um, and I think we're going to get into some of the technology issues going on at FDA, but what happened was I arrived at FDA as a data girl, right? So my background really is in cancer data and cancer clinical trials, and I think that when I arrived at FDA, as well as when 
um, I was recruited, the expectation was really was gonna focus on data. And what happened was approximately March, I stopped and sort of stepped back and said, wait a second, if we're going to become a more digital agency, what's gonna have to happen in order to allow that um, to be real? And so took on the role as chief information officer in March to also combine a focus of both data and technology to move us forward into a modern age. Now I want to remind you to tell us the three funny things about your background. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> so, um, I, this is my home state, so I'm a Florida girl. And uh, you'd asked me on the call, so Amir had asked me on, on the call as we were planning. Um, he's like, well, you know, as, as we're talking about your career, you need to tell me something really funny and interesting on the stage. And so I've been thinking about this all night. So I didn't want to go without uh, tell, talking about it. So as a Florida girl, my uh, two best jobs um, outside of my three jobs I just told you about are that I worked at NASA as a... Um, uh, engineer um, and computer programmer in the Artificial Intelligence Lab in 1984. So my first paper was in robotics engineering and artificial intelligence. It wasn't what we call AI today. And then my um, actually probably favorite job is I was a can-can dancer at Disney World. Um, and I always say that uh, I'm a weeble. So a weeble's wobble and they don't fall down. So you can kind of knock me around in any job and I'll just kind of pop back up and keep on going. I think, I think we need to, first of all, one inspiring role model, but... Um, we also need to introduce you to Jolene uh, as well. You'll see what that means in a moment when we get off wait. stage. Yeah. So <laughs> now you mentioned that you'd you know, taken the right turn. So I, I think I've read in at least two articles that you were the secret behind Flatiron. What, what were the uh, biggest lessons you learned there? Because that was obviously really woke people up to the potential of what Flatiron was doing. Can you tell us what, what was the sort of most important lessons you learned there? So as I went to the tech industry, um, I, I think that there were a, a couple of core things that, that stand out to me. I knew from my days in academia that uh, clinical data in particular is very idiosyncratic. Uh, and practically speaking, if we're going to take advantage of information that's buried in electronic health records, combine it together with claims data and information, for example, in genomics data sets um, to really create robust systems for continuous outcomes research. The first thing you've got to do is clean up the information or clean up the data. So I think that one of the core lessons learned is that there's no magic push button that's going to allow you to clean up all the data and get it perfect so that now you can feed all your algorithms um, and, and uh, generate clinical evidence quickly. Uh, and that practically speaking, what we first did was to develop software solutions that allowed real people to become much more efficient at hand curation of data. So pulling data points out of PDFs or unstructured documents and now putting it in the right place in the data set. So we had really clean data sets that were now real world evidence data sets, but effectively mimicked clinical trials. So I think that's the first thing I learned. Second thing I learned is something that I'd seen in academia but really became clear to me as I went to the health tech industry, which is to solve the problem sitting in front of us today actually requires a magnanimous way of getting everybody sitting at the table, no hierarchy, and having the ability to have engineers and clinicians and statisticians and people on the business side and the lawyers and people who are thinking about what does it take to curate data all looking exactly the same problem through different lenses and now being able to come up with a solution in the middle. And I, I think that that's going to be a continuous 
um, story throughout my journey from this point forward. And we've been trying to think about how do we even do that um, within the FDA, which is definitely a place for an hierarchy. Um, but we're thinking about how do we develop pop-up teams and other things um, to, to break that down. Uh, I think the third thing that I, I learned and wouldn't be surprised to this room is that capital matters, right? And these are hard problems to solve that require real investment. And that real investment um, ultimately allows you to do the, the, the bigger book of work. And, you know, I, I've believed in this RWE story for a very long time, um, but it really took uh, something taking off and the rest of the world saying, ah, oh, this really can work for there to be then acceleration. You know, I, talking about the work you did, sort of hand curating behind the scenes, uh, I saw a video there that really reminds you of you kind of, it's sort of an analogy. There was a video from Eastern Europe and the guy had a Yugo in a car park, very old Eastern European car, and magically he would put his foot under it like the fancy new cars, and the trunk would come up. So it looked like he had using, and he said the video was about how he's using AI. You know, some of the more modern cars do that, right? And he was doing this with a Yugo. And the video shows that. It's like, look, we've developed AI that can do that even for a Yugo. Then they zoom out. And what it was is every time he put his foot there, his friend was lifting the trunk up and down the background. It's <laughs> cheating. So it really reminded me there's always in the back, there's people actually doing hard work that, you know, some people may call AI. So that just made me think of you when I looked at that video, actually. <laughs> the mechanical Turk. <laughs> now, now this, exactly. Now, this afternoon, we actually have dig-in sessions on AI, RW, et cetera. From your perspective, what do you think is the role of AI, RW, technology in general when you look at the drug development landscape? So, you know, if we go along the, the line of thinking that the hard things are still going to remain hard and we, and, and we have to be thoughtful and judicious and deliberate, I still think AI, real-world evidence, and new technical solutions, including track and trace or, or blockchain, are, are going to start to speed up um, the process. So if I take real-world evidence, for example, there's a lot of work to be done here. Um, I, I think I made a fair amount of news about three months ago when I said I still continue to be very cautious in, in the real-world evidence space, and that's because we still have critical work to do to make sure the data are fit for purpose, that we know how to analyze data sets, and that we, we, we know to what tasks we can put them to use in the clinical development space. And it's our job together to actually work through a series of deliberate stepwise tasks. So using real-world data to better inform the design of clinical trials, using real-world data to help us identify where patients are for patient matching for clinical trials, thoughtfully starting to use real-world data perhaps to populate parts of the clinical trials data set. Ultimately, maybe we can use real-world data and real-world evidence to take the place of some of the tasks we currently use clinical trials for, for example, um, the comparator arm for um, uh, comparison of the current intervention. So I think there's stepwise tasks for real-world evidence, but it means that we have to be very thoughtful about getting the data right and getting the analyses right, and we cannot move away from our responsibility of asking the right question and doing the right analysis. If I now take that to the landscape of artificial intelligence, you can see that it's the same pattern. We have to th be thoughtful about when we can apply artificial intelligence, understanding how to develop algorithms thoughtfully, making sure we understand the data that are populating the development of those algorithms, so understanding issues, for example, of bias in the data, and then understanding how algorithms perform, and if they're learning, making sure that the performance of algorithms across time are not veering off of the task at hand. But that being said, I think we can put AI to use in helping us 
design better trials and helping us now, for example, better allocate patients to different intervention arms, and then ultimately and helping us do other things such as clean up data or um, support clinical decision support. And, and, and blockchain is another capability that I would make sure that you put into your conversation and your toolkit because practically speaking, track and trace will help us be able to better manage drugs. It will be able to help us be able to understand which patients have consented and understand consent profiles, et cetera. Thank you. So the next question I want to ask you is about the fact that the biomedical landscape is really, I think, lots of new innovations that are really groundbreaking. How is the FDA uh, working to meet that sort of innovation, innovative lens. Yeah. So I, I go back to the story of when I showed up in February and thought, I'm here, we're going to work on data, this is going to be so much fun. And then I went, whoa, wait a second. Um, we have some work to do to make sure that as FDA, we're ready um, for this landscape. And so in uh, about the middle of September, we announced the Technology Modernization Action Plan, which is a three-part plan announced now intended to take us on a journey, a path towards the use of data technology mm -hmm. at FDA in service of biomedicine. Mm -hmm. And that plan um, first focuses on getting the technical infrastructure right at FDA. So that we're ready to have um, a landscape of data exchange. And I'll give you some examples in, in, in just a moment. That means that we're building a cloud-forward agency that's technically ready to receive information, make sense of it quickly, and also interact um, more efficiently with the landscape of biomedicine. The second thing in the Technology Modernization Action Plan is what is essentially almost like an accelerator model, but not because we're accelerating companies, but we're building a series of living examples or use cases that start to demonstrate what it looks like to put better technology and data into play at FDA today and also in the future. And in fact, just two days ago, quietly in the bottom of a press release, uh, we talked about the, this model, the Co-Innovate model, and uh, this is really the first time I've ever talked about it. Um, and really the goal of Co-Innovate is actually to bring those living examples to bear, and I can come back to some of those. The third part of the technology modernization plan is something that's very new for FDA. And that's actually to learn how to com communicate and collaborate with the larger group of stakeholders in the data and technology community. We know how to talk to pharma. We know how to talk to the drug, uh, to the device industry. We know how to big talk to the food industry. But we currently do not have a mechanism to talk to the larger community of data and tech innovators unless they're directly regulated by us. And that is a problem because many of the solutions that are going to be brought to bear, especially in the clinical development space, are not directly regulated by us, but actually are really important to the life sciences industry and others who need those solutions to allow you to do your work better. And so practically speaking, we need to make sure that we help those innovators understand what does good look like, what are we looking for as the agency, and also we need to understand what are they looking for. Uh, perhaps I'll go back to two of those uh, use cases, um, in, in, as I mentioned. So, so what do I mean um, by putting the data and technology solutions to bear um, within the context uh, of the agency? Uh, on Tuesday, we announced um, a new set of draft guidances, seven and 15-day safety reports. Practically speaking, I think as many of you in the room know, for INDs, safety reports come to us as a PDF currently, the MedWatch form. That is generated out of your databases, 
turned into a form, sent to us as a form, and then our med reviewers have, medical reviewers have to spot check those forms and identify safety signals through unstructured documents. One of our medical reviewers, Sean Cozen, who was a part of the original uh, book of work that was the informed program and has now um, been morphed into Co-Innovate, he, he said, wait a second, can't we hook up the pipes? Can't we bring the data directly in from the data sets that are sitting on the industry side into the agency so that we can now quickly identify safety signals and, and be more efficient um, in the process of drug development? Five uh, industry partners collaborated on the original model. Ultimately, we developed an application programming interface, an API that allowed the direct import of the data, but we learned a lot of things along the way. Glow and behold, you've got to have a place where to put the data. You need to train the medical reviewers about how to look at the information in new ways. We need to build data visualization engines to allow us to spot check and identify signals. Then we need to figure out how do we train everybody? How do we communicate with industry? And so ultimately what this led to was a completely hardened, secure system with appropriate training and guidance for industry. And that guidance was announced on Tuesday and practically speaking, shows a very strong signal of the direction we're moving as it relates to now being able to be ready for a digital age where digital information comes directly to the agency, we're able to make sense of it quickly, and we can now port those lessons learned um, to other parts of industry. And, and that guidance um, is a draft guidance and um, signals that there'll be two years where we can continue in the, con the usual PDF MedWatch um, format and then ultimately move to the standardized format over the next two years. So that's an example of a use case that's a part of the technology plan, which also gives us the opportunity to think about what it is that we need to build. Within the co-innovate model, we're looking at other use cases. And one other example um, is real-time oncology review. So within the context of real-time oncology review, where for some uh, supplemental applications, we are now reviewing those applications earlier then even the full package is submitted so we can already start asking questions about data and, and be ready to make decisions as fast as possible. What we showed with the first real-time oncology review is we cut three months off the time to uh, the regulatory decision. But practically speaking, the information was coming over as old-fashioned data packages and written packages. What happens if you now take the digitized solutions that we're building for the 7 and 15 day IND and start to also apply those kinds of solutions to, set, to the real-time oncology review process? We can start making things faster there um, as well. And so these are the examples of the kinds of places we're starting to think about in the co-innovate model to move this forward. Thank you. So it sounds like you've been pretty busy. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I'm still the principal deputy commissioner, so we still have to yes. make sure we um, run the agency. So um, one of our core principles of summit is collaboration. How do you see the role of collaboration in drug development and moving forward? Uh, you know, I think there's lots of places that I see collaboration um, as critical. And I want to drill down on one that I just mentioned, and, and then we can explore others if you're interested. But I just mentioned the importance of collaborating um, with the data um, and tech industry because it's just not something we do right now. I was uh, at a meeting on Tuesday, and I was listening to this entrepreneur, a young CEO, as she was sort of describing the solution she was building. So essentially what this um, CEO was describing was a solution to take the, a, a set of 
um, currently available guidelines and turn them into patient-friendly, patient-facing solution that can be personalized with patient information. And now the doctor and the patient could um, ultimately make individualized decisions. That was kind of what she was working on. But also, as a part of this, there was a real-world data, real-world evidence component. And what I was listening to her say was, we can't figure out who to talk to to understand you know, if we're going to have data as a component of what comes out of the exhaust of our application, what do we, how do we know what goods looks like? How would the, we know if these data are of the kind um, that might be of interest to the life sciences industry or could be incorporated into clinical trials? And I started to think to myself, now wait a second, when I was in the tech industry, how did I know? Because this was one of the things that I led. How, how did I know that? Well, you know, because I had been in academia and doing a lot of other stuff beforehand, I knew to take, talk to patient advocacy groups and go sit at their meetings and the FDA would show up. I knew to go to the National Academy of Medicine and sit at the meetings and the FDA would show up. So I knew where FDA would be so I could keep trying to find ways to talk. And what I realized was that I knew this because of prior experience, but right now, for all of the innovators that you're gonna be relying on, they don't have an easy way to come. There's no such thing as a type C meeting if you're not regulated by us in, 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 in the data and in, in tech industry. There's no regulatory toolkit that basically says, you are here, here's the guidances to look for for electronic health records, et cetera. So I think collaboration means we need new ways of talking to all the people that live in our ecosystem to make sure that everybody understands how to work together and that this also gives us the opportunity to understand what kind of creative things are coming down the road that we might incorporate now into the solutions that sit in front of us. So now that you're FDA, has that changed your perspective about anything in general, having now sat on that side? How has it made you think about the same issues? So, so a few things that's changed my perspective about. Um, I think the first thing I, I will honestly say that has um, changed as my perspective is that I'm an optimist at heart, and as I spoke about in the very beginning, I am incredibly... Um, focused on how do we respond to that sense of urgency in the clinic. And sometimes in responding to that sense of urgency in the clinic, it may give me blinders to um, uh, when things could go wrong, bad actors, um, problems in something that I believed in so much that, that might uh, otherwise not succeed in how I anticipated. I think that one of the first things I've realized at the agency where our responsibility is to promote and protect public health. And that translates to, for example, understanding safety and effectiveness of medical products. Is that, first of all, some things aren't safe, or we learn, learn later on that there are safety concerns. That second of all, there aren't only good actors out there, there are some bad actors. And as a regulatory agency, our responsibility is to identify those. And that third, deliberate, and thoughtful needs to go hand in hand with urgency and trying to speed things up. So I think I probably have added a little bit of a governor or gating function to my thinking, but that does not take away my sense of urgency. Is there anything that I should have asked you that I haven't asked you? Um, one of the things that you might want to know is uh, what, what do I find um, most surprising at the agency? And I think that the couple things I would say uh, in working in government, and so this is a bit of a recruitment pitch, um, is that, uh, you know, practically speaking, I thought that government was going to be a bit um, slow. Uh, and I discovered that actually government is very fast. 
Um, it's because there's so many different things happening simultaneously that practically speaking, while any one may be moving a little more slowly than I thought, I think that, that um, they're, they're, uh, they're all moving in parallel, and so that makes things um, move very quickly. I think the second thing that I found really um, surprising, and I saw this in, in my prior two roles, um, but now it's becoming more obvious to me in the agency, is the importance of frameworks in ways that I just didn't understand before. Um, and maybe what I'll do is tell you about one framework um, that I've been thinking a lot about, which is our framework for artificial intelligence. Um, you know, as I think from the perspective of the agency, so I, I'm the principal deputy commissioner, so I go all over all of the centers. So even though, for example, our device center does a, a terrific job of really focusing on how do we regulate artificial intelligence, I need to think about what does this look like across the agency? So I have to have a framework of thinking of how I'm going to solve that. And, and so practically speaking, within the context of artificial intelligence, I see four core, core categories. First of all, there are artificial intelligence solutions that we specifically regulate. And those are incorporated, for example, as software as a medical device. Um, we need to sort of think about how do we make sure that there is um, well-controlled, thoughtful software development practice. And the work in, that happens in CDRH is really important for trying to advance regulated products in artificial intelligence. The second is within the context of artificial intelligence solutions that are embedded in life sciences and healthcare-related solutions that we don't specifically regulate but are very important to our industry. So for example, if we're talking about data curation or we're talking about some better patient matching for clinical trials or we're talking about clinical decision support that isn't regulated, ultimately, artificial intelligence there is still an important book of work. There's the third part, though, that I think is also equally important, which is artificial intelligence that we as an agency use in our day-to-day -day work and teaches us both how to think about artificial intelligence as well as how we can use artificial intelligence to automate what we do. And then the fourth is that we have to build a robust technical infrastructure to be able to make sure that we've got the right data sets and we've got the right capabilities to use artificial intelligence solutions. And that teaches us what it needs to look like also across biomedicine. Thank you. Well, I think we're out of time. I've learned a few things, uh, not only from what you've told me, that I think that's been really enlightening for me, but also I've learned that FDA is very lucky to have you. And um, I also have uh, told you before that you're welcome here any year. Please come and visit us because this is your drug development home. So you're, I'm sure everyone would agree with me that we would love to have you anytime you can come. We'd love to see what things you're up to. And thank you for what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into this CNS Summit podcast. To get more episodes on your device automatically, be sure to subscribe to the CNS Summit podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. You can also get this on Health Podcast Network, which you can find at healthpodcastnetwork.com. Be sure to visit the CNS Summit website at cnssummit.org to find out more about upcoming events, news, and announcements.